Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years uh, that takes us up to now. Hello, welcome to another episode of 30 Years of Ed Tech. I'm on to 2003 and my favourite tech, blogs now. Uh, the audio book chapter that follows after this is read by Lee scalarock Bassett, and uh, the Between the Chapters podcast has Clint Lalonde and Bunny Stewart on it, and it's worth a listen. I mean, I guess, perhaps this is just me, but, but I think blogs probably induce more nostalgia than most ed tech topics. And sometimes that's just, you know, good to think about, but it's also good to ponder why is that? And I think probably because it links so much to people's sense of identity and the sort of communities they often created around blogs and with other bloggers. Um, a kind of common theme, I think, throughout the book, particularly those early chapters, is this idea that you, know, you could do it, you could write stuff, you, you could share stuff, you could become you know, a voice in this area. And I think that was kind of a big revelation for a lot of people. Um, and I still think that was kind of quite amazing. And we kind of have become blasé about that now with um, with social media and stuff. And, and everyone says everything, and often that's not a very good thing. But I think it was often, it was a big realisation, I think, for me. And I think for a lot of other people, like, you know, you can start writing other stuff. Just do it. Uh, in the uh, podcast, Bonnie particularly makes the point about how, you know, a lot of the time it, it became really monetized. She she started off in the sort of parenting blog world and that very quickly became monetized and, and commodified and sort of people became very professional and started earning money from it. And I think it's interesting now that we see, and I, I don't mention this in the chapter, but I think that has really moved on to things like Substack now, you know, as a way of kind of really monetizing and, and often really good content as well. And I, I you know, I, I read a lot of content from, various newsletters and through Substack and that. And I think you can really create this very rich sort of media ecosystem for yourself. Um, but it's, I think it's interesting kind of how we've ended up with email newsletters as our way of getting information. And I think one of the things I really miss is at the time you remember RSS uh, and a lot, all blogs used to have the little RSS button on you could click on and that's how you subscribe through Google reader or whatever it was your reader. Plus, you could do great things with RSS, pull it all together and, and aggregate blogs together. Some of you may remember a tool called Yahoo Pipes where you could bring in different feeds and create stuff. And a colleague of mine, Tony Hurst, was like a real a real wizard with Yahoo Pipes and create these, this great content by just bringing things together. And I think it was really 
the advent of Twitter that saw the death of RSS. I mean, it still exists and some people still use uh, blog readers, but not in the same way that they used to. Um, and people just started using Twitter to kind of amplify and share their blogs and that would bring it to the surface. And now that Twitter is is in decline, um, there isn't really one place to go to for that. Uh, and so, you know, myself and many others have started again, ending up back at the newsletter, even if it's just a newsletter of your blog, at least people can then subscribe to that and get the content. But it feels, uh, that doesn't feel like an advance to me to go from the magic of RSS to, you know, getting stuff coming into your uh, email. But I think that relationship with social media that the Twitter amplification demonstrates uh, is also touched upon in the podcast. And Bonnie talks about how it allowed people to kind of really get angry about things, amplify things in a way that you, you didn't have so much with blogs. Because you know, by the time you were going through, um, I mean, you still did get it in blogs, obviously, but not to the same degree. You like by the time you could think through a, a kind of long form blog post. You could take people through a kind of nuanced argument, but nuance isn't really something that works on a lot of uh, the shorter platforms like Twitter. And so people just kind of create these pylons and, and, and enjoy creating outrage and stuff. You know, people have referred to uh, Twitter as a kind of outrage economy. Now, that wasn't really the case with, with, with blogs. You know, they didn't rely on, on that so much. Um, but now we've kind of... So I think understanding how one particular platform, one particular technology such as blogs is then influenced and, and shaped by other technologies that happen around it is a kind of interesting thing to, to think about. Um, one thing I will say is uh, during the pandemic, which obviously happened after I wrote the chapter, I found it really useful to have a platform of my own, so my own blog, where I could respond quickly. And I started creating drop-in sessions for people who suddenly have to shift everything online, didn't know how to do this stuff. So I'd run weekly drop-in sessions and we'd talk about how to do online assessment or how to do learning design and I did a lot of blogging around the time of the pandemic trying to offer advice about you know how to construct online courses and those kind of things and I could do that much quicker than uh, than my institution Open University the Open University did respond and, and um, offered lots of good advice and things but I think you know it was it happened very quickly and having my own platform that had its own network and um, its own audience allowed me to kind of react very quickly and that was a really valuable thing to have at the time um, I still we they talk of this a bit in the podcast about how they use an education I still think we could use blogs more on education <laughs> and lots of people do use them really well I think and, and Bonnie makes a point that it's a bit false sometimes say so now write a blog post for assessment and, and it sort of becomes just a, a sort of tick box exercise rather than sort of something you do but I think as an example of how to establish your online identity and one that you take with you from between institutions and, and becomes your place on the open web and I, I think we could do more with blogs still but there we are i'm a diehard diehard blogger it's um i wrote a piece once about you know becoming an academic blogger was the best decision i made in my academic life uh that's probably still pretty true you know um i think my blogs evolved over time what i say in it but it's still core to my online identity. So here's the blogs. Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. 
This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 10, 2003, Blogs, read by Lee Scalera-Bassett. Blogging developed alongside the more education-specific developments we have seen, and it was then co-opted into EdTech. In doing so, it foreshadowed much of the Web 2.0 developments with which it is often bundled. Blogging was a very obvious extension of the web. Once people realized that anyone could publish on the web, they inevitably started to publish diaries, journals, and regularly updated resources. Blogging emerged from a simple version of online journals when syndication became easy to implement. The advent of feeds, and particularly the Universal Standard RSS, which had various definitions, but really simple syndication is probably the most appropriate, provided a means for readers to subscribe to anyone's blog and receive regular updates. This was as revolutionary as the liberation that web publishing initially provided. If the web made everyone a publisher, then RSS made everyone a distributor. People swiftly moved beyond journals. After all, what area wasn't affected by the ability to create content freely, whenever you want, and have it immediately distributed to your audiences? Blogs and RSS-type distribution were akin to giving everyone industrial powers. It's not surprising that in 2019, we are still wrestling with the implications. No other edtech has continued to develop and solidify, as the proliferation of WordPress sites attests, and remains so full of potential. For almost every edtech that comes along, ePortfolios, LMS, MOOC, OER, social media, there is a group, of which I would probably be a member, who proposed that a blog version would be a better alternative. Back in 2003, the use of blogs in education was just beginning and a fledgling community of educational bloggers was emerging. There was a particularly vibrant EDU blogging set in Canada, possibly as a result of large distances involved, and those interested in new technologies found others engaging in similar experimentation via blogs. This potential to expand the academic community through the informal use of blogs that were external to formal university systems was powerful and would be repeated later with social media. From the perspective of today, with ubiquitous social media, it is difficult to appreciate how liberating the advent of blogging was in higher education. Blogging provided a new form of academic identity, and one that increasingly became as significant as the traditional identity that is formed through publications, teaching, and research grants. It came with its own cultural norms of informality, acknowledgement, experimentation, and support. Particularly in the early years, these norms were more significant to bloggers than disciplinary ones, to the extent that bloggers in different disciplines had more in common than bloggers and non-bloggers in the same discipline. This was known to produce tension. For instance, Costa, 2013, has argued that, quote, higher education institutions are more likely to encourage conventional forms of publication than innovative approaches to research communications, end quote, page 171. 
She reported that academics with an online identity were adopting a, quote, double gamers, end quote, strategy, whereby they slowly implemented cultural changes to practice while simultaneously engaging in traditional practice to remain relevant within their institutions. Costa 2016. The online academic had to negotiate two worlds simultaneously, which can have different modes of operation and value systems. As Costa 2016 put it, they end up playing two games. There is some effort to reconcile these modes with increasing recognition of the value of network identity in achieving scholarly goals, although most remuneration is still linked to traditional outputs, such as published articles and successful research grant income. This is in contrast with the online world that determines prestige through identities and attention. Stewart 2015 Blogs can be seen as the start of what would become a networked academic identity, which would become more prevalent with the Web 2.0 and social media boom. Valencianos and Kimmins, 2012, used the term Networked Participatory Scholarship, or NPS, to encompass scholars' use of social networks to, quote, pursue, share, reflect upon, critique, improve, validate, and further their scholarship, end quote, page 766. This has become a rich area for research as academics wrestle with some of the issues it raises. On the positive side, Stewart, 2016, noted that establishing such an identity increases visibility for pre-tenure academics, and this can offer some protection in a climate of precarious academic labor. Quote, Among the junior scholars and graduate students in this study, opportunities including media appearances, plenary addresses, and even academic positions were credited to long-term NPS involvement in residency and to resultant online visibility. End quote, page 76. Lupton, 2014, reported that academics often use social media strategically to establish networks, share information, publicize and develop research, and provide and receive support. Similarly, a study of academic bloggers by Mew Byrne and Thompson, 2013, found that they address academic work conditions and policy contexts, share information and provide advice, operating a form of, quote, gift economy, end quote. However, on the negative side, the online world is one which Stewart, 2016, notes can be characterized by, quote, rampant misogyny, racism, and harassment, end quote, page 62. For all their potential to democratize the online space, such tools frequently reflect and reinforce existing prestige, with higher-ranked universities having more popular Twitter accounts, Jordan, 2017a, and professors generally developing larger networks and other positions in higher education. Jordan, 2017b. Before this toxicity came to invade the online realm, there was a good deal of, perhaps naive, optimism about the use of blogging in edtech. At the time, there were many types of benefits that could be articulated for individuals who were blogging. The economics of reputation. Increasingly, a reputation online came to be seen as a valuable commodity. It became complementary to conventional scholarship, with an online reputation leading to an impact that we recognize traditionally, such as in keynote invitations, research collaborations, and increased citations for publications. Engagement with subject area. In many subject areas, the blogosphere was where much of the informed and detailed debate took place, and so engagement with it became part of normal academic activity. Organizational status. Increasingly, institutions came to recognize the value of academics with substantial online profiles. Link to teaching. The type of content used in courses became increasingly diverse, and one model for including up-to-date information was to include blogs. 
public engagement. Blogs tended to have easier reading scores, Weller, 2007A, and could form part of an ecosystem around public engagement and dissemination of research. Blog posts, videos, and podcasts that accompanied formal publications could be used to explain research in more appropriate language for a wider audience. Developing personal networks. Much as social media came to be used later, blogs established a means of building a network of contacts without necessarily having to meet face-to-face. Fast forward to the current internet ecosystem and what blogs provide is a means of anchoring an online identity. It may be distributed across other media such as YouTube, Flickr, Twitter, Instagram, and so on, but it provides a central hub for these. Increasingly, as data capitalism and the nefarious uses of our data have come to light, there has been a movement to, quote, own your own domain, end quote. That is, to host your own tools on a domain that is under your control rather than simply using a third-party service. Waters, 2016, has emphasized that this control and ownership of data is an educational imperative. Quote, when one controls, albeit temporarily, a domain name and a bit of server space, I contend, we act in resistance to an internet culture and an internet technology and an internet business model in which we control little to nothing. We own little to nothing. End quote. Paragraph four. Blogs are not just a tool for educators, but increasingly for students also. Following on from the previous chapter, it is interesting to speculate what the current ed tech environment would look like if, in the early days, institutions had adopted blogging platforms as their LMS rather than the commercial products. This is not as far-fetched as it might seem. Blogging tools such as WordPress can be constructed to deliver course content and have embedded discussions. And they are easily extendable with free plugins for specific functions, resembling the sort of service-oriented architecture that was deemed desirable. Templated versions can be implemented for all students, so they have their own space to develop their identity, create assignments, and develop something akin to an e-portfolio. More on this later. In 2008, Jim Groom and others were promoting the idea of blogs as educational platforms. Quote, This model puts the power in the hands of the authors, which in turn provides the possibility for a far greater level of educational openness. These are platforms that provide many, if not all, of the features of more traditional LMSs, but exponentially move beyond them given the fact that they benefit from huge open source communities that are constantly enhancing the applications. End quote. Groom, 2008A, paragraph 1. What this comparison between LMS and blogs reveals is more than a difference over software preferences. It reveals differing visions about the nature of edtech. For many of the advocates of blogs, the vision of edtech is one that embraces the open aspects of the original web. To return to Waters, 2016, post on Owning Your Own Domain, she claims, quote, The rest of edtech, the LMS, adaptive learning software, predictive analytics, surveillance tech, through and through, is built on an ideology of data extraction, outsourcing, and neoliberalism. But the web, and here I mean the web as an ideal, to be sure, unless the web in reality, has a stake in public scholarship and public infrastructure. End quote. Paragraph 26. Groom and Lamb, 2014, also bemoan this loss of the original vision of the web in how edtech came to be deployed and see the LMS as a key component in this. Quote, in the mid-90s, college and university campuses were the epicenter of web culture. 
This is a powerful and compelling narrative of higher education as a laboratory for the future. Two decades later, higher education overall, perhaps concerned about the untamed territories of the open web and facing unquestionably profound challenges in extending its promise beyond the early adopters, cast its lot with a, quote, system that promised to, quote, manage this wild potential and peril, end quote, page 29. However, Contrary to this view is the fact that many learners are nervous about entering higher education and particularly online environments. The LMS provides a structured, quote-unquote, safe environment within which to learn. It is also designed to hook into existing university systems such as registration, assessment, and library systems. It is also the case that many educators feel uncomfortable in online environments and a more open approach might leave them floundering. It is not necessarily a binary divide. For instance, there are commercial applications of blogs and of the open source LMS, so it is a bore of a continuum. It represents something of a philosophical divide about how people view e-learning, and at its center are degrees of control. Around 2009, I demonstrated blogs to some academics, and one of them commented that they were concerned that students could share links to content outside the course, content that was not approved, and thus might be misleading. This is, at its core, the challenge that the internet poses for education, a move from a tightly controlled system to a less regulated and more open one. The blog versus LMS debate is a representation of this, but it recurs in different forms. We shall see it again in different interpretations of MOOC, for instance. I started blogging in earnest after several abortive attempts in 2006, and six years later, Weller, 2012, I declared the commencement of blogging to be the best decision I made in my academic career. I would still hold to that in 2019. Thank you for listening to 25 Years of EdTech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of EdTech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grib Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. listening to metaphors of edtech remember to subscribe if this is your bag uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there